It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, it's a Saturday, a rare Saturday recording. Yeah, I like Saturday recordings now. I think we should probably do this more often. Saturday afternoon. Yeah, we only do this when we have a West Coast guest for some reason. But we could do this on Saturday afternoons. It would be fun. Yeah, it would be fun instead of doing it uh, in the evenings after a long day's work, right? Yeah, exactly. I think we're a little more refreshed, a little more chipper. I don't know, chipper. I don't well, know. I can be chipper. Well, but you're I... never chipper. You can find us on Twitter. <laughs> we are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, you can find us at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. And of course, the base intro and outro, that is Lex. And Jerry, we're not going to do an email today because we have the results of the Playlist Wars episode where we did our Rush Deep Cuts playlist. That's right. We do. Before we give the results, I should remind everybody of the songs we chose, don't you think? Oh, that'd be a great idea. My songs were The Fountain of Lumneth, After Image, Losing It, Between Sun and Moon, and Available Light. Jerry, you chose Anagram for Mongo, The Way the Wind Blows, High Water, Red Lenses, and The Stars Look Down, and our guest Brian Colburn from Playlist Wars. He chose BU2B, Spin Drift, Test for Echo, Chemistry, and Cinderella Man. And Jerry, you have tabulated the results, have you not? I have. Unfortunately for me, I have tabulated the results. <laughs> Ooh, that's good for me. It is very good for you. I hope. Because you were the uh, overwhelming favorite. Oh, nice. 45% of people said that your deep cut list was the best of the three. Well, I have a theory of why that is. What could possibly be your theory? Well, one reason is the fountain of Lumneth because I think all the old school rush fans either voted for me or Brian because I had the fountain of Lumneth. He had Cinderella man and you didn't have any old school rush, which I think hurt you with the seventies rush fans. Okay, whatever, man. No, no, I'm not I'm not saying your <laughs> list was bad. I'm just saying Oh, people said my list was bad. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. People were like, no, man, you gotta you did not understand the assignment, I think is what people said. <laughs> and the other thing is the feedback I got on Twitter, we got a lot of people giving us their lists. Yeah. And the song that came up the most on all the lists, what do you think it was? I know it. Available light. Available light. I put available light on my list. That's the reason I won. I think you're 100% correct because I, the emails I got too, most people put available light on their list. So this is a little cheating. We're going to be on Playlist Wars in a couple of months, right? We're going to be doing our Rush playlists. Right. We're going to be competing with Brian and Gomez against their Rush playlists. Yes. Now, of course, I hope Brian's not listening to this. He's going to find out. But <laughs> I say we put available light on our list. <laughs> Right? It's because it's such a crowd favorite. It's a crowd pleaser. We're trying to win this thing. Yeah. Okay. We can do that. But if they do it, then I'll know they listened and they're cheating. Right. Well, just remember <laughs> not to put any of the ones I had on that list. I came in last of the three. Brian had 32% and I had 23%. So mine was, people did not think my deep cut list was deep enough. Or maybe it was too deep. Too deep even for deep cuts? Too deep for deep cuts. So, Jer, we've got a great guest today on the Rush Fan Cast. Someone that a lot of our listeners have been requesting, right? 
That's absolutely true. As soon as the video came out. Have you seen this guy? Have you seen this video? Have you seen this video? Well, I've seen the video and it came out on January 7th, which marked two years since the death of Neil Peart. And our guest posted a video on YouTube that quickly went viral in the Rush community. It's called Drumming to All 175 Songs by Rush. And the amazing drummer behind this video is brand director for Drumeo, author, educator, and performer based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and author of the books The Drummer's Toolbox and The Best Beginner Drum Book, Brandon Taves. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here. Really appreciate you joining us. We like to start out, Brandon, by asking our guests their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? I love it. I was probably oh, maybe nine years old, and I'd been playing drums for maybe a year, year and a half or so. And my dad was actually really into like 80s and 90s rock and stuff like that. And I remember kind of scrubbing through these curated iTunes playlists. Uh, that'll tell you my age growing <laughs> up at nine years old, going through iTunes. And I remember just like checking out all this music. And I remember coming across Tom Sawyer in one of those playlists. And I'm like, what is this? And I kind of checked out the band, checked out what they had done. And I'm like, I really want to learn how to play this song on drums. And that kind of led into this three, four, five year expedition to try to learn how to play that song, which was way beyond me at that point in time. But kind of from there, I went into moving pictures and all that stuff, permanent waves. And a few years later, Snakes and Arrows had come out. I remember walking into uh, Future Shop at the time, which I don't even think exists anymore, but on display on the, the front of the store was Snakes and Arrows. I'm like, is that the same band? Like is that <laughs> the same rush that I've been learning? And obviously it was. So I picked up that record a few years later when I was in ninth grade, Clockwork Angels came out. I remember sitting in class with one earphone in, just like absorbing all this stuff just because it was so good. So I started with moving pictures, kind of went to the newer stuff that was coming out uh, at the time. And then from there, went straight back, Farewell to Kings, Fly by Night, all that stuff. Uh, but moving pictures was kind of the catalyst for me getting into Rush. And as evidenced by your, your video, you don't have like a prejudice some older Rush fans do against the, the 80s years, do you? You just love it all. No, it's funny because when I was younger... I love the more progressive stuff, all the odd time as a drummer that just fascinated me. I never really got into the synth era so much when I was younger, but over probably the last five, six years, Grace Under Pressure and Power Windows have become like two of my favorite Rush albums. So it's one of those things where it's like you go back, you re-listen to it and you're like, oh, maybe I didn't enjoy this so much when I was younger, but there really is something here that's so cool, so innovative. And personally, I just have a greater appreciation for the whole catalog now after working on this project. <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of like everything. There's certain areas I like more than others, but there's also some hidden gems that you come back to and they kind of grow on you as you just dive in more. So tell us more about how this project got started. Now, did you learn every single Rush song in its entirety and create a video with every single Rush song? first before editing these together? I did not. 
maybe in 50, 60, 70 <laughs> years, maybe I'll do that. Um, that would be something else. If anyone out there has, uh, wants to do that, I send you my, my encouragement. <laughs> That'd be quite the, uh, the undertaking. But basically how this, this all came together, uh, it was June, late June of 2020. And I wanted to get back into the studio. I had taken a bit of a break from filming a lot of videos and stuff. And I was kind of looking at what important milestone dates were coming up and obviously centered around my favorite drummers and stuff. So I'm looking at all these dates and I saw that September, I believe the 9th or September the 7th was Neil's birthday, something mm -hmm. uh, in that week. And I'm like, oh, it would be great to do kind of a tribute to Neil. Uh, so I'm on YouTube kind of scanning for what other drummers have done, just like for formats of videos. And I came across this channel uh, and he had done a Beatles discography in five minutes. And I'm like, oh, these videos are really cool. And I'm watching and I'm like, this is um, incredible. All the tempo changes and stuff. But I don't feel like I'm getting the essence of the song and the parts. So I'm like, well, has anyone done this with Rush? And I'm looking around and there's obviously some medleys of famous Rush songs and Rush albums and stuff. But no one had done the entire discography in chronological order. So I said, if I was going to do this, I would want to do longer sections of songs so that you could actually get a little bit inside Neil's mind as to how he was playing, what he was thinking. But if we were going to do it, it would have to have every song, uh, even including the first non-album single, mm -hmm. feedback, all that kind of stuff. So did some more research, got the go ahead to do the video. And the original goal was to release it on Neil's birthday, but kind of with the scope of the project, that was going to be a bit tight. So we pushed that and thought it would be more impactful to release that as kind of a tribute to the anniversary of his passing. So it's like late June, early July, ideas a go ahead. First step was actually putting together the medley of songs. And I kind of had the timeline. I had a studio date booked for the first week of September. It was either then or it was going to be weeks later because the studio was just booked. So I said, first week of September, I'm going in and kind of everything worked backwards from there. So that would mean by the last week of July, I would have to be on my practice kit starting to learn this stuff because I need at least five weeks <laughs> to put all this stuff together. So first step was putting the medley together. So I kind of went through every album uh, one by one and chose either my favorite moment in the song or a moment that kind of captured the essence of the song, whether it's lyrically or uh, something in Neil's drum part that just really gives you an idea of what that song is about. Picking out those four to eight second time codes, putting them in a spreadsheet, that took about three weeks to go through all of those different 175 songs and then working with an audio engineer to actually splice them all together, make sure the transitions are nice. Some were awkward. They like going from what was one like Rivendell into <laughs> uh, making memories. I think there were some other ones, red lenses into between the wheels that came after that. Yeah. Like some of those are just super awkward. So it was, I knew it was going to be a challenge having to learn them, but in general, I thought, the medley actually worked out pretty nicely uh, in the final edit. I was really happy with it. So after that, we've got the medley all put together. And guys, feel free to jump in if you have questions. <laughs> about anything specific. No, no, this is great. 
giving you the full rundown here. So uh, we work with a transcriptionist out of Italy, a good friend of mine named Sergio Ponti. And inside of Drumia, we have every Rush song fully notated, note for note. And so kind of as a reference for when I was learning this, he put together the notation for the entire medley. It was about 30 pages long. And I would listen to it by ear and sit in my car. I'd listen to it three times a day, to and from work and once during work, uh, just to get the transitions in my head. But I'd also reference the actual notation if there's something that either was buried in the mix or I wasn't 100% sure what he was playing, I would reference that. And that whole process was over five weeks, kind of late July to end of August, early September. And we set up at Drumio, we have this warehouse where we store a whole bunch of, I think we have up to 60 or 70 kits. And depending on the artists that we bring out for educational content, there's some brand of kit that works for them. So with all of that gear, we put together this practice kit, which was pretty close to what you see in the final video. But things would change here and there, like transitioning from song to song. Maybe Neil had a cowbell on his right side, but I would need to have that over on my left because I'm coming out of another song played on the left side of the kit. So the front kit was pretty close to what Neil had on his last probably 10, 15 years of touring. But the back kit was, I mean, there were elements from the Power Windows kit and the Signals kit that you can see, but Neil never played acoustic drums on the back. But there's a fill in Grand Designs, and he played acoustic toms on that. And the timestamp that I had from that song had that drum fill. So it's like, man, I got to set up a full acoustic kit <laughs> on the back now, layered with the Simmons toms that Neil used in the 80s, mixed with the Roland stuff that he used in the 2000s. So, yeah, there was just a whole bunch of like different elements of every era of Neil's kit which was really cool to kind of piece together. So learning the parts, kind of building the kit as we go, learning mainly just the, the rhythmic patterns that he played first. And then the last kind of two weeks of piecing that all together was what was the actual orchestration of the drum parts? So did he go from Tom one to three to five, or did he go just cascading down all the toms, figuring out like exactly how he orchestrated those parts? Um, because Generally, like what I wanted to do with this tribute, there's been so many videos that have been put out from Neil, as I'm sure both of you have seen so many tributes that are out there. But if I was going to do this, it had to encompass the same sort of work ethic and passion and attention to detail that Neil would have put into literally anything he did in his writing, in his drum parts, in whatever it was. So I wanted to approach this project with that same attention to detail and care that he would have done. So that's kind of the backstory of how this all came together. When we were in the studio, I filmed it all, all 24 and a half minutes straight through. Uh, we did that about five or six times straight just to get a whole bunch of different camera angles and little moments on like the foot cams, playing with the tubular bells and stuff. But it was all played through uh, as one 24 minute piece. I didn't know what to expect from the story of how this video came to be, but I was not expecting a spreadsheet to make it an appearance. <laughs> like I have to tell you, I'm like, I, I know there was a lot of work put into this, but yeah. man, that was a lot of work put into yeah. this. It's funny because my job at Dramio is I'm a project manager. So I do a lot of work in the studio as a drummer and as an artist, but 
I do a lot of work behind the scenes too, organizing assets. And like, if we have an artist coming out and they want to piece together this medley of some of their songs, for example, like if Dennis Chambers came out, he's coming out next week. Uh, if he wanted to do like a mashup of John Schofield songs and Funkadelic songs, that would all be worked out behind the scenes in a spreadsheet or a document and put together. So that's kind of just the way I work. And with this kind of scope of a project, it was the only way I could kind of keep track. I like that you, you said you wanted to bring out the essence of the songs because as us Rush fans, we could identify each of those songs by the pieces that you played in them, which was great. But there are certainly some pieces that you played which wouldn't necessarily be the most dramatic or flashiest or you know the hugest kind of fill in the song how did you decide i'm thinking specifically of like um losing it mm. you, i think you played the part right before the the violin solo yeah. really ramps up and it's not you don't drum intensive but it certainly is a very interesting thing that neil was doing so how did you decide which parts to put in like that yeah that's a great question so i will say part of that was i wanted to make it somewhat playable for myself too <laughs> i will put that out there that's Full disclosure. But some of it, I mean, capturing the essence of the song, for sure, there's certain songs where that's true. But I think some of it, like I mentioned, was either my favorite parts or something that for me as a drummer just also kind of encompasses what the song is. And for me, in, in losing it, a part that's always stood out to me is the violin solo because it goes into 11 8 and you're coming out of this kind of five, eight and four, four section in the chorus, which is to me like very reflective in the song. You go from this, Neil's playing this kind of lighter thing on the ride with these accents on the crashes. And then all of a sudden we're into 11, eight and it's this driving groove with ghost notes and syncopated kick drum. So for me, that was a really impactful part of the song just personally. So even though that might not be the case for everyone, capturing the end of that chorus and the transition into Ben's violin solo, for me, that just kind of gives a great depiction of the song from my perspective. Yeah, because a lot of people, a criticism people have of Russian generals is that they play a lot, right? And then yeah. Neil plays a lot, but he doesn't always play a lot. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> he doesn't always. He is doing what everyone else in the song is doing. He's playing what needs to be played, and sometimes he's not playing a lot. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because I think a lot of people, they kind of compare what drummers are supposed to play to maybe a four, five, six piece rock band. But in the power trio setting, I think the role and responsibility of every instrumentalist is different from, say, some of those five or six piece bands. And I think they had, because there were only three of them, the ability to play more or maybe let someone play even more than that, but also pull back from your part. So I think there's, there's often some uh, unfair, isn't the right, the right word, but I think it's, it's different depending on the situation. And rush was really unique in that sense where the only three guys, you had the opportunity and ability to, to push more. Uh, and I think that's just really cool about rush in general. Before we get really in depth on Neil, I really love the fact that you included the John Rutsey songs mm. in this video, who is an underrated drummer, in my opinion. Can you tell us a little bit about John's style and what you like about it? Yeah, that's great. It's funny. Um, there were, I didn't get pushback on that, but for me as a Rush fan, you can't deny John's influence on everything, right? Maybe if John didn't join that band, Neil may never have been a part of rush that's just 
fact, right? One thing leads to the next. And I thought for this tribute, even though it was, I mean, Neil is more associated as being the Rush drummer, of course. He was in the band for 40 years. But John was a big part of that. And that's something I wanted to do from the beginning. Uh, if we're doing a Rush chronological thing, John is a part of that. And Neil played those songs too. So yeah, something I love about John is, I mean, he has that classic hard hitting. He has that swing in his playing, uh, very different from Neil's. And that whole first record is, for me, just a fantastic 70s rock album. It's nothing fancy, but to me, it's just perfect from the, from the drum part. It's, it's not metronomically perfect. It's not the cleanest playing you would hear from other drummers in that era. But I think at that point in time, with the music they were playing and stuff, he fit that role just so perfectly. But what's so cool is from Working Man to uh, Anthem, when you hear those back to back, like, yeah. oh, man, like these are just drastically different. Uh, and it's not a bad thing. I think both of those drummers were perfect for Rush in both of those times uh, in their own right. Yeah, I mean, it's, and like you said, Neil played, I mean, Working Man how many times, right? Yeah. And he added his own stuff, but obviously he, he had to keep the basic structure of the song. So yeah. he respected that, that as well. Well, and even right up to the R40 tour, right? Like Neil yeah. not playing those cascading drum fills uh, down the toms in that song. Like he's keeping it to the roots. And I think it's so cool to be able to go from Cygnus X1 to Working Man <laughs> in the same set, right? Like <laughs> there's, some, there's something about that. What about the evolution of Neil? What did you discover about Neil's evolution, learning the fly-by-night songs and then learning the Clockwork Angels songs and doing them all in order like that? What changed about Neil's playing over the years? That's a great question. Yeah, there. when I was learning all this, there's certain things that immediately stood out and I could see that through notation, but more so just the what it what it took to play those parts. So... A few examples. So in the 70s, obviously, he's known, like I've mentioned a few times already, those huge drum fills from his six or eight inch tom down the entire kit. That's just signature Neil stuff, right? Um, as you get into a big, like noticeable one was on the Test for Echo record. Of all the sections that I chose up until Test for Echo, there was really no use of the left foot playing the hi-hats. I mean, there were some electronic uh, triggers in power windows that he used the left foot, but never playing like the stepped hi-hat in really any of those grooves. There's a few here and there, but nothing consistently. The second you get to Test for Echo, in almost every single song, that becomes one of the main elements in every groove he plays. So I was learning all this stuff, and Test for Echo was one of those albums that I never got really into. Obviously, Driven, I got into Test for Echo, the title track I was into. But some of those others, uh, I was actually kind of unfamiliar with. And I'm learning these and I'm like, why are these so difficult? And I know Neil was studying with Freddie Gruber at the time. So he was taking a whole new approach to playing drums at that point. And it shows because that was one of the hardest sections to learn just because now we're dealing with four limb independence on every single song. <laughs> so that, that was a really noticeable one. Moving forward, even from there, Vapor Trails. Neil's comeback album, pretty much, that's a hard-hitting record. Those drum parts, they're not kind of sitting in the background. They are driving forward. The drum parts are aggressive. And we even see that moving into Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork Angels. 
I feel like it's not as proggy as the old stuff. There's more hard rock elements in there. Now, some of that could have just been Neil was, he was getting older. And I mean, obviously he could still play those parts, but I think the band was in a different place at that point in time, probably taking influence from other music that was coming out. But like Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork, like those are heavy records, just like Vapor Trails. And that's something that I saw like very different from some of those 80s and 90s records and especially the older stuff. But yeah, technically there was some little things like that. The left foot was a big one. The aggression in these newer records. Yeah, those are some like noticeable observations I had. So I'm assuming it was mentally difficult. It's only playing these short sections to go from those different styles, right? One to the other, to the other, to the other. Absolutely. Honestly, that was the hardest part of this entire project. We were doing it in order, which meant you're going from a ballad to, I mean, carve away the stone to one little victory, moving over your left foot to play double bass, like those little technical challenges, plus the incremental tempo changes or drastic tempo changes from song to song. Uh, That was a little bit ridiculous. And the only way I could learn that was listening to it over and over again, hundreds of times in my car, memorizing the tempo changes and how one song flowed to the next. So how long then were you sitting behind this enormous kit before you started filming? How, how much time did you have to dedicate to learning just 20 minutes worth of music, basically? Yeah, so like I talked about earlier, the whole process from uh, ideation to filming was 10 weeks. And three of those 10 weeks were just putting the song together. It was about seven weeks, I would say, of listening and playing. Typically, I was going in uh, Saturdays and Sundays onto this practice kit, and I would spend anywhere from four to 12 hours every weekend just isolating one album at a time, mainly focusing on just getting the tempo changes right. That was huge. The other most challenging part was the bass drum parts. Because Getty and Neil were so locked in and this stuff was so worked out and composed. And I wanted to make sure those kick drum parts were right. And so many of them are so similar, but they're not the same. And going from one song to the next, it's like, what was the kick pattern that Neil played there? Oh man, I missed two of them. I got to get that right. For example, Roll the Bones. That one, there's like this four bar phrase in the chorus and every single bar has a different kick drum placement. It's like, doom, ke- uh, the next one, doom, t-gons, like all these like slight changes. So yeah, probably seven weeks of actually having access to the kit and intense listening. Which songs would you say were the most challenging and fun to play? For me, I think it would probably be the 80s stuff. I'm just guessing like High Water, Red Lenses, Mystic Rhythms. Yeah. Those 80s songs seem to be really challenging. Yeah, great question. I found a whole new love for Hold Your Fire in this project because a lot of those songs, I mean, High Water, I don't know if anyone talks about that song, but that part, even just that four or eight bar section is so cool. Like the samples that he has, he has like this reversed timpani sound with like a tambourine overdubbed over it. He has these really high pitched uh, like taiko drums just a whole bunch of really interesting sounds and then power windows like mystic rhythms was that was a tough one with the left foot triggering kind of this clap trap sound that he had in the 80s double china symbols up top 
so orchestration wise, I'd say the eighties were the most difficult parts to learn just because, oh, I, I didn't mention this either. So for the electronics in this project, there were about 17 different pre-made kits that we had stored in a Roland module and every single song had a different set of samples. So <laughs> we ran a module into the control room and one of my coworkers, a good friend of mine, Kyle Radomski, he was actually switching the drum kit presets for every single song on Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows and Hold Your Fire. So I'd play four bars of, or eight bars of red lenses, and then he would trigger the switch to the next kit. And then the Simmons toms would be loaded up, right? But yeah, there was a lot of just creating the samples and then having to switch between them live. There was a bit of a tangent there, but definitely the 80s stuff. Uh, and then I would say the test for Echo album and Vapor Trails, partially because I was more unfamiliar with those two, but also the parts were just challenging. Yeah, I would say those two records plus the 80s stuff would be, took the most time. You know, there's a part in the video toward the end when you're done playing BU2B2, I could see your face. You're like, thank God, <laughs> yeah. this is almost over. Was there, yeah. how many, how many points in this video, in the making of this video, were like, I think I bit off a little more than I could chew. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. There were, there were sticks thrown across the room. <laughs> not, not, in the, not in the studio, but when I was in the warehouse, like no one was ever in there when I was practicing. And I'm like, how am I going to learn all of these parts? This is just <laughs> insanity. And I, I definitely have a habit for taking on projects and they just end up being really big. I really enjoy seeing something through from this idea that someone had, whether it's myself or someone else, and seeing it turn into this thing that's actually really impactful and rewarding personally. But yeah, there were moments when I would learn, maybe I had the first eight minutes down up to signals. And it's like, I, first of all, I don't even have the electronics programmed yet. I've got like three weeks left to learn this. And I don't even know which pad I'm going to hit or which, how I'm going to place these or, or build it properly. So it's playable. But the only solution to that is more practice, <laughs> get in there. And again, going back to why am I doing this? What's the point? And just sticking through with the perseverance. What would Neil have done in that moment? I'm sure there were songs that he was learning. La Via Strangiato or any of those tracks. I'm sure he went through the same thing <laughs> probably many more times than I did. So I just have to say it was masterfully edited because I really thought that you took different parts from different performances and edited them all together. There was only one point where I didn't see an edit in between the songs. And that was between Closer to the Heart yeah. and Cinderella Man. Yeah. Because there was definitely not an edit there. But all the other parts, I'm like, he must have just learned all these songs. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, our head editor at Drumio, a good friend of mine I actually went to high school with. His name is Ross Collingwood. He's a fantastic drummer himself. And that's part of the reason why his edits look so good is because he understands drumming and drummers. He can anticipate when you're going to go to a certain symbol or a certain drum. For example, like the YYZ section, he knows that song and he knows that there's going to be those cymbal chokes mm -hmm. and he moves up to the front and he's immediately capturing that. So he can kind of like masterfully put those edits together and know what drummers want to see. But yeah, like really, we actually talked about releasing it as a single camera 
take just to <laughs> to show people that this was it was learned as one complete mm -hmm. piece but there were certain sections where it's like okay we want to see the kit spin like neil did and we want to see yeah. those little electronic pads that neil would have hit and stuff like that so yeah what about the stick throws in the air how many takes oh i did them on every take <laughs> i'm not a, a stick twirler or a, a stick thrower but that was a big part of what neil did live so i figured if, if we're going to do that we got to do what neil would have done so there were there were definitely a few where i hit the roof and then it like <laughs> totally went to the side of the room but there were a few in there that worked out and those are the ones you see in there you know, on the Drumeo website, Brandon, there are a whole bunch of other videos which are fantastic, but there's one that caught our eye called The Genius of Neil Peart, yes. where you list five reasons that Neil is a genius. And the first one is he was an inventor. Can you talk a little bit about that and the drum parts that you were keying in on there? Yeah, I love it. You guys have dug deep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so that video was an interesting one I'll, I'll talk about neil as an inventor but that was a cool project because it's like neil has done so much but how do you boil this down into like five or six things that really encompass neil's entire being as a drummer so the first one there, neil as an inventor i believe the parts i talked about in there were neil's signature ride cymbal groove mm -hmm. that's a big one and as in the drum community, I don't know if either of you are drummers. I don't think no. I've heard that yet. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, you appreciate drums, though, because Neil is uh, <laughs> a legend. Jerry has a drum kit. I, are you a drummer, Jerry? Would you call yourself a drummer? Uh, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> I started to learn how to play the drums right before COVID hit. So I got, you know, like a year's worth of practicing. Yeah. Mm, don't know if I'd call myself a drummer though, but well, I, I would still call you a drummer. Okay. I'm a drummer, Steve. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Jerry's a drummer. I take it back. Approved. Yeah. So in the drumming community, it's, it's always a funny one because we do a lot with sticking patterns and rudiments and these types of things and sticking patterns. You can't really invent, right? It's, it's just a, a pattern of right and left uh, hand stickings. Mm -hmm. But Neil had his signature ride cymbal groove, which you hear on subdivisions, YYZ, between the wheels. It was one from uh, Hold Your Fire as well. I think even Time Stand Still. Anyways, it's in a ton of different songs. And this became one of Neil's signature drum parts. And I think that does cater to him being as an inventor. It's something that he worked into his own unique style, but he also infused it into every single era of rush music and it's something that became synonymous with him as a drummer and sure maybe there were other people playing that in the 70s and and whatever but that became one of neil's signature things and definitely something that i would say he kind of invented another one that i think we we talked about in the video there was his drum fills those cascading down the kit drum fills and again there were other drummers playing those types of kits. Bill Bruford had a big kit, lots of other drummers in, in the 70s and 80s in the prog world. But nowadays, 40, 50 years later, when someone plays that type of drum fill, the first thing people think of is, oh, that's a, a Neil Peart inspired drum fill. Mm. And again, you can't invent 
16th notes or 32nd notes going down the toms. But that's something that he kind of worked into just mainstream drumming. And that's become synonymous with him as a drummer as well. So I would definitely say Neil was an inventor in the drum community. And it's those signature things that he did are now used everywhere across genre drummers all over the world. Yeah. You know, you hear a lot about guitarists having a voice or any kind of instrumentalist having a voice. You don't usually hear that when it comes to drums, but it's just as true. And someone like Neil shows it. Absolutely. And it's, it's something that um, like I studied a lot of jazz music uh, in university and it's something we see even in jazz music, apart from obviously rush, I would compare more to like compositional rock music, right? Those parts are orchestrated, they're figured out and it's incredible. But even in jazz music, even just the way a drummer plays the ride cymbal, where their natural emphasis or accent falls on a cymbal, that's all part of what becomes their signature style. And people still talk about 60, 70 years later, but even in compositional music and progressive music like that, I think that still applies. It's, it's different, but it's something that universally in music, having your own voice applies to everyone and everything. Now, Brandon, your second reason Neil is a genius is he is the designer. Mm. You talk about him building tension in one section and releasing it into the next. Can you explain that and maybe give us an example from a Rush song? Yeah, that's great. The one I talked about in the video, and I have another example of this too, Tom Sawyer, the synth solo into Alex's guitar solo into the legendary drum solo. So Neil kind of starts the the synth solo with Getty playing and he's kind of doing those hi-hat shots in seven, eight, and it kind of stays this repeating two bar pattern, which everyone knows, go listen to the song. You'll, you'll know the part that releases into Alex's guitar solo. We're still in seven, but the turnarounds now are in like six, 16, 13, 16. So there's a bit of tension happening there. Neil starts moving around the snare backbeats and the, the kick placement. And you're like, oh, like, are we still in seven? Are we alluding to something else? So this tension is just kind of churning underneath. And then that kind of happens all the way through and you end up at this drum solo, like the ultimate tension of Tom Sawyer, right? And crazy Tom fills, all these cymbal crash accents and stuff. And that all concludes with going back into that 16th note groove with Getty back on vocals. So that whole sort of section, it's... It's this constant build and shape to the way Neil's kind of designing this drum part, designing this song. So much of the impact of this song is based on what Neil is playing behind the drums. And it's just this constant escalation, which anyone who's listened to that song, like you can feel something is just like churning in the background the whole time. Another great example of that is a song we talked about earlier, Losing It, where you have these choruses which are very reflective and neil's just playing this kind of simple ride cymbal pattern a few cymbal crashes here and there but as the chorus comes to an end as you're approaching uh, i think ben mink was the violinist you're approaching the end there's these cymbal crashes and then it's into this groove and we go from this spacious section with lots of room to hear and listen to what Getty's saying in the vocal. And now we're in this driving 11-8 section with this 
uh, affected violin. We're in a different time signature, but there's this, this drive to the song and the drum part now. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that's something that Neil designed intentionally based on where he wanted the song to go and where the band wanted the song to go. And that all goes back to kind of this compositional element of Rush's music where they weren't leaving things to chance. Now, of course, there were sections where they were improvising. Of course, they weren't just stuck to a script the whole time, but their songwriting had intention behind it. There was meaning behind those parts and those musical choices. And I think it's just fascinating to listen to those songs and look at how Neil kind of crafted those. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a lay musician, as, that's how I would describe myself, a lay musician. <laughs> it was interesting watching this section because you're like, oh yeah, I've noticed that, but I've never noticed it. Do you know what I mean? It just, it's part of the structure of the song and it definitely gives a feeling, but I, I was never like, oh yeah, he's doing, he's not playing here or he's playing here or he's not playing here, but he's definitely, you know, those, especially the, they're not in your face, the time changes. Yeah. You know, some of the bands are just like, it's like, oh, okay, this is, this is the weird part. But the way it's like seamlessly built into the song and somehow makes you feel a certain thing is definitely unusual, I think, in a lot of bands. Yeah, and that, that's a great point because I think um, in YouTube culture and music education and stuff and all that, it's so easy to clutter just the how the music makes you feel and what you think about the music with all this technical language and stuff like this. and the end of the day, like when I was growing up listening to Rush, I was never thinking about that kind of stuff. Oh, they're building tension and they're trying to get the listener to feel this way and stuff like that. That's all stuff that I've become interested in and fascinated by. But at the end of the day, it's like the music is the music and how the music makes you feel and all that kind of stuff trumps all the technical stuff, right? But I think it is interesting to especially having listened to the band for so many years and, and same for you guys too, to kind of see that stuff written out or explained, you immediately know what that means, right? Just like you said, you can, oh yeah, I can feel the music is something is building. I don't know how they're doing it or, or what's really going on, but that tension and that feeling is there regardless. You're feeling more hyped up, whatever it may be. So reason number three, Brandon, is the virtuoso. And you talk about his double bass drum work on One Little Victory. Yeah. And it is just insane. Can you talk about that? Yeah. This is a funny one because there's a lot of anyone who's not a, a diehard Rush fan or whatever, talking about Neil as a double bass player is always funny because in my opinion, like Neil wasn't, he wasn't the world's best double bass player. There's people out there who are playing in 9-8, alternating 32nd note madness on the double kicks and stuff. But the way Neil used this with power and precision and to fit inside the songs that Rush was making, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, he uses it so tastefully. One Little Victory, for example, the way they decided to record that with Neil just coming in off the top after this five-year hiatus or this five-year break, I just think it's brilliant. And Neil definitely proves in that track even though the part he's playing isn't extremely technical, it just goes to validate his double bass play and all the stuff he did prior. Like there's double bass stuff on Anthem, I believe, a bunch of stuff on the Fly By Night record. And he uses it like throughout Rush's career. But I think it is important to 
acknowledged because it's not acknowledged a lot of the time. He was a proficient double bass player, and I think it's worth mentioning for sure. Another kind of virtuoso element I talked about in the video uh, was in the song Bravado, which again, I think is an underrated Rush track, but in my opinion, one of the most challenging Rush songs for any drummer to play. It's literally like he's this octopus in the last <laughs> chorus of the song where he's going between the ride cymbal and the floor tom with his right hand. He's going between the left side floor tom and the snare and the hi-hats with his left hand, playing some stuff on his feet. It's just masterful four-limb independence. And anyone who tries playing that song or just go watch a video of him playing it, you'll immediately know why. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, a quote by him one time was that someone asked him, you know, what's it like playing drums for Rush? And he said, it's like running a marathon and doing equations in your head at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and watching you play that, I was like, oh, God, man, that must have taken forever to learn. Never mind write. Yeah. Just to learn it. Well, yeah. I mean, just responding to some of the comments on that YouTube video, it's one thing, like, sure, I learned the parts and all that kind of stuff, but think whatever you want about that. But Neil created those parts. He didn't have a framework to go off of other than what he was jamming with Getty and, and Alex. Like, those came out of his mind. He didn't just learn them. <laughs> to me, that's, that's like the true genius behind Neil, like being able to create that stuff out of nothing. Yeah, that's the hard part, right? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've told other people this too. I think there's other people out there who could play the Rush songs and play the medley I played probably better than I could do it. The thing for, for me was, it was just the time, the commitment to doing it. I feel like that's where a lot of people probably would have fallen off, just staying focused on one thing for a long time. But yeah, there's, there's people who could play those parts, but I don't think there's a lot of people who could come up with those parts like Neil. Mm. So your next point, Brandon, is Neil as the explorer. He always pushed the sonic boundaries, as you said. Yeah. And always looking for new things to play, new percussion pieces to add. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That was one of the first things I think I noticed about Neil. Now, obviously, you can look at his kit and you see all this, this stuff. Uh, and a lot of people think a lot of it is just for show or whatever to make it look like he has a big kit. But all those pieces were intentional and for a purpose. And that's a theme we keep coming back to over and over. In the 70s, you see Neil experimenting with a lot of that classical percussion, the crotales, the tubular bells or chimes, wind chimes, all that kind of stuff. Classical percussion, stuff you would see in a symphony orchestra or anything like that. Um, as you move into the 80s, we start to get into electronics, the Simmons drums, the hexagonal electronic drums that are just iconic. So yeah, we start getting into modern technology and Rush finding ways and Neil finding ways to actually not just throw that to the wayside and be like, oh, that's just a new thing or a fad. I don't need to adopt that. He actually took that when it was at kind of the peak he was using those Simmons drums, I believe, in the early 80s when they were still new on the market. And he adopted that quickly and found ways to work that into his drum parts. And I think in general, that's just something that makes Rush so cool is they never didn't go for or didn't follow their curiosity. 
they always tried to find ways to work new things in, take influences from new music, from new wave, from reggae, from punk, all that kind of stuff. As we move into the 90s and stuff, again, more electronics, but finding like new ways to use them. I think that's when he start, started using the Roland stuff, which we see right up to the R40 tour. And then in the late 80s, also the Mallet Cat percussion controller, which again, he used up until the R40 tour. He'd play Spirit of Radio on that thing, YYZ. So in the old days, he would play that, I believe, on the Kutales, but it just made more sense to adopt modern technology and play that on uh, the keyboard percussion he had right beside him. So yeah, I think it's something that we see right from the beginning up until the R40 tour, always finding new sounds. It, it shows in Gettys, in the instruments he chooses, in the stuff Alex chooses for effects and guitars, just never conforming to one thing, always staying curious, finding new ways to make the music modern and kind of set a new path for the band. I think that's just brilliant. Yeah, and especially with the with the 80s stuff, he could have just put you know, the electronic drums in his kit and let it go at that. Yeah. But he didn't. It allowed him to open up to these other sounds that he may have been like, man, I wish I could put something like this in here, but he couldn't because of the technology yeah. at the time. But once it became available, he didn't just use it off the rack kind of thing. He was like, how can I use it to express even more of what I want to say? Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I think when it comes to electronics, especially in the 80s, I'm actually working on, it's coming out next month, a documentary on the history of electronic drums where we acquired like 15 different kits and stuff. But I've been doing a lot of research on kind of like electronics and technology criticism and stuff like that from the 80s and 90s. And back at that point in time, electronics were getting a ton of criticism because people thought they were replacing acoustic drums. Mm. But I don't think that's ever been the point of that. I think electronics are a way to explore things that aren't possible on acoustic drums. And I think Neil understood that earlier than most, where he still had his acoustic kit up because he knew that that was going to get him a certain sound, a certain energy. But he, when he went to the electronics, that allowed him to access sounds that he couldn't get on an acoustic set. So taking advantage of that and not just simply replacing the acoustics with electronics, there was value in both. Your final point on your genius video, Brandon, is Neil as the mathematician, the time signatures. The one that jumps out at me all the time is circumstances. You didn't mention that one in your video, Yeah, but that's a crazy one, right? Yeah, that's uh, for the Rush medley, the 175 songs. That was one of my favorite songs to do. And it was one I never really learned how to play. <laughs> and it's so hard. Like even just the chorus, there's so many shifting meters and even in the sections where the, the time signature stays the same, where he puts the accents and the crashes, it's not always on a downbeat. It's sometimes in the middle of a bar or whatever. And the phrasing of the vocals is a bit wacky. But yeah, Neil, as a mathematician, it's, it's one thing to be able to do all the things that we just talked about, invent, design, play at a high technical level. But to actually do that within the boundaries of well, lack of boundaries when it comes to time signatures is just insane. Like Cygnus X1, uh, La Via Strangiato, there's sections in nine and three and shifting feels and meters and all this kind of stuff. Sometimes staying within one time signature, for example, like the synth solo in Tom Sawyer or YYZ, the whole intro in 
but in a lot of those songs like Cygnus X1, you're bouncing between meters every single bar. So applying all of those things we've talked about into meters that are literally changing seconds apart from one another uh, is just insane. So yeah, he's a, a progressive wizard and definitely a, a mathematician. What are the different feelings associated with different time signatures? We were talking before about how different songs have a different feel in different places, but is there an answer to that question? Like if I play something in 916, it's going to have a certain feel as opposed to some other time signature. Yeah, I, I think like, again, it depends on the music, but I think that depending on the time signature, there's going to be a certain amount of tension associated with it. So in Western music, 4-4 four, four is the most kind of grounded feeling. There's, there's not a lot of tension in that rhythmically. Now, of course, there could be some crazy atonal guitar part over top and you're going to feel tense. But rhythmically, when you're playing 4-4, four, four, it's going to feel pretty grounded. Once you move into like 5-4, five, 5-8, five, eight, eight, stuff like that, at least in Western music, because we're so familiar with 4-4, four, four, you're going to hear 5 and 7 and you're going to feel like something is being like pulled out from under you. It's going to feel a little bit tense. And I think there's value in that, right? Even the way Rush would sometimes go between 4-4 four, four, and then maybe 7-8 or maybe 5-4, that can almost give you this sense of, okay, we're grounded. Oh, but wait, there is something here that's not quite set in stone. Okay, now we're back to being grounded. So I feel like time signatures are a compositional and musical tool that bands can use to impact how they want the listener to feel. But I think it largely depends on just the music uh, and everything that's going on uh, in the song, because you will hear some songs that are in five or seven, and you might not even know it. Take uh, the violin solo from Losing It. The first time I heard that, I didn't think it was in 11 or alternating six and five. <laughs> it's, it's just this thing. It feels pretty natural, sounds natural, but it's like, huh, it's not. It's actually an odd time. And when we kind of explore, like if you ever listen to like Indian classical music or any music from that part of the world where threes, five, seven, and nine, that's equivalent to our Western four, four. So it's, it's totally a cultural thing where we feel uh, four, four is just this uh, comfortable common ground, but other places in the world, four, four is a little bit weird because these odd note phrases and groupings are, that's the norm for them. So yeah, time signatures are just fascinating. And I think the way Rush used them definitely left an impact and certain feeling in certain songs and sections. So Brandon, were you surprised by how viral this video went? I mean, the Rush community just latched onto this, the 175 songs video. Yeah, honestly, it's, it's always interesting with tributes because I've, I've said this before uh, to some other people, but anytime you launch a tribute, especially one that's so significant as a drummer like Neil, I'm always curious to see what the response is when Neil's not actually featured in the video, right? Like for example, the genius of Neil Peart video, there's a lot of footage of Neil in that. And that was the point. I didn't want to so much showcase the educational part. I wanted to showcase Neil playing these parts. So yeah, it was a little bit surprising because I thought there would be a lot of, well, at least some backlash to not feature Neil himself in the video because it's just me playing the songs. But what was so cool was that the Rush community and the music community 
saw through to the actual intention of this project, which was not to showcase me playing the parts. Sure, it was fun to learn and all that kind of stuff. But the point of that video was to highlight what Neil had actually created over those 40 years. And for me as a Rush fan, to just like show my love for the band and for Neil's parts that he's created. And it was overwhelmingly positive to see the Rush community really get behind that. Some of the comments were just crazy. People talking about this medley, kind of taking them through this expedited soundtrack of their life, right? All these different eras of Rush music, every one of those associated with some point in their life or some memory or experience. But yeah, I had no idea that it would make it into all these online publications, Billboard, Ultimate Classic Rock, all this stuff. So yeah, it's, it's cool. And I'm, I'm hoping that every year in September and January, there's this influx of people just coming back to this video and taking that journey again through this history of Rush. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been pretty cool to see. So what do you think Neil's legacy is, Brandon? How do you think Neil will be remembered 50 years, 100 years from now? Oh man, that's a heavy question. Yeah. Um, I think it goes even beyond him as a drummer. Of course, there's legacy in Neil's drum parts. We've talked about signature parts he's created that have made it their way across the world, cross generations. But I think even more than that, and when I first clued into this was actually the day he passed. There's been a lot of musicians and people in the entertainment world who have passed away in the last two years. And there's there's some press around it and there's some people who post about it and stuff like that. But the day Neil passed away, I think I scrolled on Facebook and Instagram for minutes and every single post was about Neil. Every single one. I have never seen that before. Maybe a post here and there of, of things like that. but. I think that goes to show just how much of an impact and legacy he actually had. And going to legacy, I think that it goes beyond the drum parts. And I think it goes to the way he worked, presented himself, the way he put 110% into literally everything he did. The books, the drum parts, the lyrics, the concerts he organized, the Buddy Rich tributes, overcoming adversity and persevering through stuff that I don't think any of us could even imagine with what happened to his daughter and his wife. He still got back on the kit. And I think any of us would have, I mean, that was almost before my time. I was maybe like four or five years old when that happened, but reading about it and reading the the response and the reaction and all that kind of stuff. I think the rush community would have been a hundred percent understanding if Neil never touched the drum kit ever again. Um, But he persevered. He came back to the drum kit. And I think those last 15 years really kind of set in stone how much Neil meant to the the music community and the drumming community, but also his character. I don't think there's a lot of people would do that or who would do that. And I think that's going to stick with his legacy and who Neil was to all of us as Rush fans and as music fans. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your books, Brandon, The Drummer's Toolbox, The Best Beginner Drum Book? Yeah, so my first book, The Best Beginner Drum Book, I wrote when I was in my third year of university studying music. Uh, I co-wrote it with my old drum teacher and the president of Drumio, Jared Falk. And we just wanted to put something together that kind of aligned with what we were teaching in Drumio, something that was modern, 
Uh, there's a lot of books out there that are old school and <laughs> a little bit outdated in my opinion. <laughs> so this kind of gave a little bit of an introduction to some important topics for beginner drummers. And it was also paired with a Drumio membership so that there was a bunch of other resources on the Drumio site that kind of paired with uh, what they were going through in the book. The second one, the Drummer's Toolbox, I call this the most comprehensive introduction to 101 drumming styles. So obviously you can't learn an entire style of music in a few pages. But what I wanted to do with this book was give drummers a resource that I wish I had when I was learning to play the drums. I remember I had probably, well, you can probably see behind me, there's like <laughs> maybe a hundred drum books there of Latin music, jazz music, rock music, all this kind of stuff. And I just wish there was a place I could go to where I could first learn about the history of the style, second, learn some actual vocabulary, things I could play on the drums uh, to get me started playing that type of music. And thirdly, some actual recommended listening that I could go actually listen to the masters of that type of music. So I put that together um, when I was in my fourth year of university and uh, <laughs> trying to <laughs> complete all my schooling while doing that. Yeah, it's a 450 page book, um, about a year's worth of research gone into that, a thousand sheet music examples, a thousand recommended songs, and a bunch of online resources included with that too. And where can Rush fans find that if they want to purchase it? You can go to the Drumio Drum Shop. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Just type in the title of the book there. Uh, both of them are also available on all ebook platforms Kindle, uh, Apple Books. Uh, Kobo, any of those ones as well. Well, I know we speak for all Rush fans, Brandon, when we thank you for putting this video together and spending all the time you did working on those songs. It really is incredible. Thanks for doing that, and thanks for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. It's uh, always a pleasure to chat Rush, chat Neil Peart drumming, and yeah, this is just awesome. So, Jerry, you weren't kidding. That was one of the best conversations we've had on this podcast, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I, it was so interesting and the video is so good and so many people wanted us to interview Brandon right after the video came out. I can't tell you how many emails I got saying, you've got to have this guy on. You have got to have this guy on. Well, as soon as I saw it, I said to you, we got to have this guy on. Right. You said the same. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, we were already on that, but, right. but it's true. We had to have him on. We had to hear that story. And I wasn't kidding, Jared. When I first saw that video, the first thing I thought is he learned all those songs. Yeah. And then they edited everything together. I had no idea, no idea that it was done in one 25-minute piece. Never would have guessed that. No, I, I, I was surprised, not only in how, they, how he did the video, but all the prep that went into it. That's just crazy to me. Yeah, and it's very Neil-like. Like he said, it's yeah. the way Neil would have done it. He did it the way Neil yeah. would have done it. And he's definitely a drum scholar, if you ask me. I felt like I could ask him any esoteric question about drumming, and he would have had a great answer to it. And while he was giving his Rush origin story, in my head, I'm trying to figure out how old this guy is. <laughs> he's in his late 20s. The kid is brilliant. Yeah, I know. If only, right, Steve? We could go back in time. <laughs> we could be brilliant, too. And I say kid just because we're old, you know? He is a full adult human being. 
<laughs> We're going off the rails here, Jared. It's been too long. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Brandon Taves at TheRushCast at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Give us five stars. Why not? Right? Yeah, six if you can. Six if you can. The bass intro and outro, that is Lex. And Jerry, hope you have a great quote to wrap up this podcast. I do. And it's from a song that Brandon said was one of his favorites. Bravado. Ah, bravado. Great one. And if love remains, though everything is lost, we will pay the price, but we will not count the cost. The brilliance of Neil Peart. Thanks, Jer. All right. See you later.